Russian defense minister said that if the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues to advance, they will use nuclear weapons in Europe. COVID was just the first modern worldwide pandemic, the first of many, and the next one will be even worse. The entire, entire Florida coral reef is dying and will be dead within weeks as waters warm in the deep south. These were all headlines I recently read, and I don't know about you, it makes me a little afraid. Like it fills me with fear and anxiety. Anyone else out here right now in your world feeling fearful? I am feeling fearful. And it's not just the world out there like, oh man, these big things are happening on the other side of the globe and I'm scared about them. I'm a dad now, which is amazing. I love being a dad. But someone once told me being a parent is like taking your heart outside of your chest and leaving it out there unprotected to live outside of your body. And at any time someone can squish it or crush it or hurt it. You can't protect your heart anymore. My heart's outside of my body in this other little person and I want to protect her and I'm afraid. She had shots this week and I'm like, what's going to happen? Is she going to cry? And she did, you know, is she going to have a reaction? Is she going to feel sick? All this fear. The world is a scary place and I worry about what might be and I worry sometimes about what is and how it's going to turn out. Fear seems to be all around us. But Jesus has some things to say about fear, and I hope that his words for his followers about fear will give you and I some hope and some encouragement this morning. We've been working through Matthew chapters 8 through 10, and in 8 through 9, Jesus heals, and then in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus invites his disciples to go out and heal with his authority to do what they've seen him do. And Jesus is continuing his thought from last week about how to behave in a world that is sometimes hostile to you because of your allegiance to Jesus. So we're going to pick up Matthew chapter 10, starting verse 21. Brother will betray brother even to death, and a father will betray his child, and children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Man, Jesus really knows how to recruit people, right? He's like, hey, join my team. Everybody's going to hate you. Um, you'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for students to be like their teacher, and servants like their master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for nothing is that con is concealed that will not nothing is concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. Don't be afraid. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Um, before we talk about fear, let's deal with some of the weird stuff in this passage. You notice in the first statement, Jesus is like, yeah, brothers are going to be killing each other. And parents are going to be ch killing children and children are going to be killing parents and you're like what is happening here what is he talking about he's predicting what comes to place in the book of acts 
Uh, Jewish family members end up turning their family, Christian family members, over to the Jewish religious leaders. And in an attempt to stop this movement of Jesus that starts growing after his resurrection. And uh, as Jewish people see Christianity as a sect of Judaism that's like differing from what they believe, they start turning them over. And we see the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He actually starts out going around rounding up these people whose family members are turning them over to the religious authority to be beaten and imprisoned and sometimes even killed. Now, uh, Jesus says something really weird here, though. Did you catch it? He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's weird, right? Is he saying those who persevere will be saved? I thought salvation was by faith alone. What is he saying? That salvation is only for those who hang in there? If I, if I have doubts or if I give up or I turn back, my salvation is lost? Is my salvation based on me and what I do or, or is it based on Jesus? Can I only be saved if my family betrays me and then I stick in there? Is that what he's saying? No, obviously not. Remember the word we translate salvation um, can also mean healing or rescue or even justice. It wasn't used just for our idea of atoning the relationship between God and man. Because of the Reformation, we think only of the word salvation being about restoring the relationship between us and God, between heaven and and earth, but really it had multiple uses in the first century. Jesus is saying, stay faithful, and if they destroy your body, I'm going to resurrect it. Stay faithful, and if you are crushed by oppressors, I will make sure your oppressors face justice. Stay faithful. Salvation is coming for you. Even if the kingdom you are in crumbles, you will be rescued into my kingdom that is coming. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on and says something even more confusing, though. Um, I don't know if you notice it here. He says, if you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That seems really weird for us reading that, right? Because it, has the Son of Man come? We're like, uh, where, where is he, right? Um, what's he talking about here? He says, keep running from the persecution and this character, the Son of Man, that's a reference to the Messiah in Daniel chapter 7, which was Jesus' favorite term for himself. He says he's going to show up, he's going to come before you even get to the borders of Israel. So is Jesus promising to return before they get to the borders of Israel? If so, that didn't come true. So what's happening here? Well, scholars suggest three possibilities. One, he was saying after the apostles finished preaching, they will return to Jesus— and they will realize that he is the Son of God. That he's been there with them, but when they get back from preaching through these towns, they won't even go through all of Israel, and they'll come back and they'll realize he is the Son of God. That's one theory. The second theory is they will not finish preaching among the Jews before Jesus' resurrection, after which they will be sent to the Gentiles. Essentially, the message is going to spread within Israel, but it won't even finish spreading before Israel, before Jesus is resurrected, revealed to be the Son of God, and after that, they're going to go out to the Gentiles. Or the third option is, um, they will not, by traveling and preaching, make the people of Israel fully embrace Jesus. They won't reach the boundaries of the Israelite people before the second advent of the Son of God. Um, whichever theory you want, uh, we have to remember that we're reading this on this side of the cross. So when we hear it, we're like, where's the Son of Man at? Where, uh, he's coming back. It says here he's coming back, right? Like, why isn't he here? 
we're reading it on this side of this cross. They were hearing it on the other side of the cross. Jesus hadn't died yet. And so I think to them it would eventually sound like a resurrection promise, not a second, promise, second coming promise as it does to us. Um, and then one last weird thing to talk about before we talk about fear is that Jesus says, hey, I've been called Beelzebul. And um, I have a really hard time saying that. Beelzebul. And if they've called me that, they're going to call you worse things too. Now, Beelzebul was an idol god in the Old Testament. Oftentimes, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see the name Baal. Baal and Beelzebul are the same character. Um, the name means the Lord of the Flies. Ugh. Gross, right? Remember at the end of chapter 9, the religious leaders said that Jesus is only doing his miracles because he is tapping into demonic power. It was a way of slandering his ministry. They're like, he's doing real stuff, but he's using evil power to do it. They're accusing Jesus of being a Canaanite god walking among them, deceiving people away from Yahweh. That's a pretty harsh claim. Um, and essentially what Jesus is saying is, they're calling me a dung god, the lord of flies, this evil pagan god. And he says, if they call me that, don't be surprised when you get called that, the same or even worse things. Okay, so all the weirdness out of the way, let's talk about fear. The most common command in scripture is, do not be afraid. Which seems to imply that the most common expression of mankind's sin and brokenness is fear. Think about that for a minute. The most common way you express your sinfulness and brokenness is by being afraid. And the starting point of God's love is casting out your fear. Don't be afraid, or some variation of it occurs 365 times in the Bible, which, um, you know, as some ministers always joke, that's one reminder for every day of the year. And as corny as that sounds, I think I need reminded every day of the year not to be afraid. There's always something to be afraid of. And fear is always a natural reflex for us as fallen humans. Christians and churches often rail against unbridled sexuality and lying and greed. And I think we should talk about those things because those things never provide the joy that we're all longing for as humans. Um, you know, we're all spending our lives looking for joy and peace. Um, those things actually rob us instead of fulfilling us. And I think we should talk about those. But perhaps we should speak even more or spend even more time talking about God's command not to fear as a better starting point for people to lay a foundation of faith. I think a lot of times people think, oh, Christianity has all these rules and they're all oppressive and they're all difficult. You know, the most common role is don't be afraid. That's a really fulfilling role. That's something that we all want. After all, there are hundreds of references not to fear and only a few dozen verses about sexuality, greed, lying, and the like. Not that those aren't important to talk about, but I think we need to talk a lot more about the fact that our sinfulness reveals itself as fearfulness. As a culture, we don't like commands because we don't like limits. Like, don't tell me what to do. I have a two-year-old, and she hates to be told what to do. As soon as you tell her not to do something, she's like, I'm going to do that. Amen. She's like, I-H-I-T. I H I T and I was like do not H I T I have to spell it because she's in the room and she'll immediately start smacking people right um, what is that about us we don't like control we don't like limits we don't like feeling like someone else is controlling us but when God commands things he commands it for our good his most common command is to not be afraid 
This isn't a command about controlling you. This is a command about helping you become a more full and complete person. He wants us to feel confident and safe. This is a God who loves us, who lays down his life for us. His commands are life, not about control. Today we're taking communion. It's a beautiful reminder that because of his death, we can live his life. Because of his life, we need not fear death. This is a God who loves us, whose blood was shed and body was broken so that we could be like him and be with him and do what he did. And really, isn't fear at the root of most of our problems and issues in our life? How much better might our lives be if we weren't afraid to speak our mind? Or if we weren't afraid uh, to start that business or take that risk or ask that person out. All the great things in your life involved you overcoming some kind of fear. Think about it. Like when Darby, I knew her for four years before I worked up the courage to overcome my fear and ask her out on a date. If I had never done that, I never would have married her. If I had never married her, I never would have moved to Philly. I never would have started this church. You wouldn't be sitting here and this little girl wouldn't be back here either. It's amazing because I overcame one fear, a whole bunch of other things fell into place. Fear is at the root of so many of our issues and problems. In the words of that wise theologian Yoda, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Could fear be the foundation behind much of our other sins? Could much of our self-destructive things that we say and do and think be because of fear? Could fear be keeping your family and your friends and you from the abundant life? Princeton University psychologist Daniel Kahneman won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2002 for the work he did with colleague Amos Tversky on prospect theory um, based on the finding that decision-making often occurs through cognitive shortcuts that have the potential to cause errors in how we estimate risk. Now, I know that was a mouthful, but in essence, he won a Nobel Peace Prize for proving that fear leads us to make bad decisions. You're like, man, they just hand out Nobel Peace Prizes for anything now, you know? But he looked at things, if we looked at things rationally, the better choice that would benefit us and others is obvious, but often we don't choose it because of fear. In a 2001 paper, behavioral economist George Lowenstein and his colleagues wrote, Fear causes us to slam on the brakes instead of steering into the skid. It immobilizes us when we have the greatest need for strength. It causes sexual dysfunction, insomnia, ulcers. It gives us dry mouth and jitters at the very moment when there is the greatest premium on clarity and eloquence. Fear stands between you and everything that you want to see happen in your life. Fear is clearly the source of much of our problems in our world today. Insecure people are fearful people, and insecure people take selfish actions to protect themselves. And that plays out in a micro level in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. And it plays out on a macro level on the world stage as nations go to war. But notice Jesus' solution. Jesus doesn't suggest rejecting all fear. Some fear is healthy. Um, trucks in Tennessee, so many of them, they would have these giant tires and they would have a bumper sticker on the back and it says, no fear. No fear. And uh, often you would see these trucks stuck in a half-drained lake that they had tried to go mudding through. Um, you, or you would see them skidded off the road in a freak southern snowstorm. And my dad would often joke, no fear and no brains. Right? Sometimes when people say no fear, what they really mean is no prudence, no wisdom, no thinking, just do it. 
Fear isn't a lack of thinking about things. It isn't just ignoring the facts or acting like everything is just going to be okay. Yet the modern world suggests that what we need to do away with is our fears and our taboos, and then we would all be happy. Bertrand Russell is a famous atheist, a British mathematician, and a brilliant guy. He said this, fear is the main source of superstition. It's one of the main sources of cruelty in the world, and to conquer fear is the beginning of wisdom. Looking at the suspicion, fear, and persecution arising from religions across the centuries, Russell, Bertrand Russell, came to believe that religious practices have done more harm than good, and in his mind, religion used fear to control people. In his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, he says, religions are both harmful and untrue. And the premise of his book is fear is the weapon of religion to control people. And if we could just break out of that control, if we could just get away from fear, then we would all be happy. In a post-Freudian society, we're constantly being told you're unhappy because you're not getting what you want. Because of some fear that tells you you can't have it. Because fear that society will reject you or fear that there will be other consequences. And so you're unhappy because these desires inside of you aren't being fulfilled. But I think some fear is healthy and necessary. A fear of snakes keeps you from getting bit. A fear of fire keeps you from being burned. A healthy fear of the stairs keeps my toddler from diving headfirst down them because her first encounter with stairs, she's like, this looks like a good place to dive headfirst down, right? No, it's, you need a healthy fear. In fact, we would call this healthy fear a respect or a wisdom. And what Jesus is saying is we don't need to just completely get rid of fears. You just don't go from being fearful to rejecting fears in one step. He says first you need to reorder your fears, not simply ignore them or suppress them. Now notice what Bertrand Russell said. The beginning of wisdom is losing all fear. Jesus, on the other hand, adopts in a, um, a message from Proverbs, from the Jewish scriptures. In Proverbs 9.10 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Notice what Jesus said back here. He says, don't be afraid of those who are going to hurt you. If you need to fear someone, fear him who can destroy body and soul. Who you need to actually fear is God. Jesus says we should fear the one who can destroy our body and soul. He says we should fear God, and that puts all our other fears in place. Because if God is bigger than our other fears, then naturally our other fears must be smaller. Now, if fearing God is a language that makes you uncomfortable, I feel a little uncomfortable with that. Like, I don't fear my father. I don't want Skye to fear me. I want her to love me. Notice what Jesus says next. The God who is bigger than your fears, who holds more power than any other power in existence, is also the God who feels compassion when a sparrow drops dead. That's what Jesus says here. He says, hey, don't be afraid of those people. They can hurt your body, but if you've got to fear somebody, fear God. He can destroy body and soul. But then he goes on, but this is the God who cares about sparrows who drop dead. This week, a bird ran into a building in our street, and it laid there on the sidewalk dead. And people walked around it. No one stopped to mourn it. Barely anybody noticed it. People continued about their lives. God noticed, and God was moved. Darby noticed, and Darby was moved. God notices when a bird hits a building and falls on the street and nobody sees it. That's the type of God that we serve. Jesus is like, sparrows are worth one penny. He's like, they're worthless. 
but God is moved. He cares when a sparrow dies. This is unique in the Christian faith. We have a God who feels things. Jesus wept. He was moved with compassion. He was a man of sorrows. This is the man, this is the God we are to fear. A God who sees a bird drop dead and doesn't have more important things to do than stop and mourn that its existence was cut short. And then Jesus goes on and says, that same God has the hairs on your head numbered. Did you notice this? Even the hairs of your head are numbered by this God. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than sparrows. Um, He counts how many hairs you have. He is interested in the smallest detail about you. Don't be afraid. God is bigger than your fears. If you must be afraid, be afraid of God. But guess what? You don't have a God that you have to be afraid of. Because he's a compassionate God who is completely committed to you. I love this verse, Matthew 10, 31. So don't be afraid. What did Jesus say? Don't fear them because they're going to destroy your body. Fear God. And then he says, but look at the God you're supposed to fear. He's not a God you have to be afraid of at all. And so in verse 31, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. That's Jesus' argument. Okay, you're afraid. Well, your fear isn't really that big compared to God. What you should really fear is God. But look at him. He's compassionate. He cares for valueless birds. And you're no mere bird to him. You're a daughter. You're a son. You're a child of the high king of heaven made in his image. He has memorized how many hairs you have. He loves you, so don't be afraid. Bertrand Russell says, We are bigger than our fears. They are superstition. Nothing should hold us back from doing whatever we want. Have no fear. You're bigger than your fear. Jesus says, fear God, and a proper fear of God will put your other fears into perspective. And when we take a close look at God's love for you, you won't fear at all. It's interesting that both the secular theory and Jesus' theory want to reach the same place, a place of no fear. But they want to reach it by very different means. As many theologians have noted, modern America is not fully post-Christian, as some nations have become. Because it still wants the morality of Christianity, about the worth of individuals, ideas about justice and fairness. We just want the kingdom without the king. We want to get the results, but we don't want to do it Jesus' way. I want to suggest that Bertrand Russell's way won't diminish your fears, because suppressing your fears doesn't make them go away. Trying to ignore them makes us chronically anxious, and boy is our society chronically anxious. It makes us frantic. And boy, is our society constantly busy, desperately trying to distract themselves from what they're afraid of. It doesn't conquer fear. It shoves it to the back of the closet. We know it is in there, even if we are trying to ignore it. Have you ever shoved anything to the back of the closet? And every time you go in that closet, you remember it's there, and you quickly shut the door. You're like, I don't want to deal with that yet. I don't want to deal with that yet. Someday I'm going to deal with that. you got that box of papers you got to go through, and you're like, someday I'll go through it, but not today. It's in the back of the closet, but it never goes away. And in the back of our mind, we remember Jesus' way unravels our fear. Fear can only be conquered by love, not by self-actualization. 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. When we go to God and we realize he is a God of love who loves us, that's when fear dissolves. Because he's bigger than anything we fear. If there's anything we should fear, it's God. But God is a God of love who loves us and wants us to love him. And when we realize that, there is no fear left. Now, Jesus logically unravels our fears. But you might say, Alex, 
Fear is emotional, not logical. And right now, I'm afraid. I'm afraid about this test result, or I'm afraid about this situation, or this bill, or I'm afraid about this relationship, I'm afraid about the world news, I'm afraid about whatever. I'm desperately afraid. What can I do right now? Here's a couple things to implement right now if you're feeling afraid. Fear makes us feel alone. That's why all of us needs community. The church is supposed to be a good place to be reminded that we have a God who loves us so we don't have to fear him. And we all need people daily to surround us in our lives. There's just something about having other humans around you, you feel braver. Like if there's a monster outside the door and there's two of you, it's just less scary than if there's only one of you, right? There's just something about other humans being around. There's something about when um, our daughter wakes up in the middle of the night from a nightmare, just having us in the room all of a sudden makes everything okay. Just sleeping next to her crib, she's like, okay, it's okay. There's somebody else here, I'm not alone. And sometimes you need a professional counselor to help you process your fears. It's okay to need Jesus and a counselor too. I did. I do. It's okay for you too, too. Number two, fear, th fear thrives in the dark. Face it. Sometimes we fear the unknown. We're so afraid of what might be that we don't see it for what it actually is. 99% of my fears in life have always been less than what they might be once they actually took place. I, I feared things would be worse 99% of the time from what they actually were. So open the envelope, read the message, look at the results, have the conversation. 99% of the time, it's not going to be as bad as you think. Many times, we can't figure out how to move forward until we know what we're up against. The best horror movies keep the monster hidden for a long time because once you see it, you can begin to rationalize it, you can begin to process it. It's never as scary once you look at it. Fear thrives in us avoiding or refusing to look at the problem. When we sit down and look at it, many times it's not as scary as we thought. Number three, fear hates the sound of laughter. Tell a joke, watch a comedy tour, call a funny friend, Somehow laughter makes me feel more courageous. It's not that the fear goes away, but rather suddenly when I laugh, it feels like the fear is getting smaller, that the fear is actually the shadow of a lion that was cast from the form of a kitten. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you told us not to be afraid. Um, the beginning of wisdom is fearing you, but that's not where you want us to end up. You want us to end up in your love. We start by fearing you, but then as we study you, as we get near you, as we get to know you, we realize you're not someone to fear. You're someone to love and respect because your love changes everything. And I think one of the first places your love touches in our lives is our fear. And God, I know that many of us are fearful about a great many things. There's always something in life that's bringing fear. That's our, that's our natural human reflexes, fallen, broken people. And that's not what you want from us. You want us to trust and believe and know that you 